Good evening, everyone, and welcome to New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and it's always a thrill to welcome you all to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. And, uh, you know, speaking of spectacular, I just took our guest speakers up to the fourth floor, um, which all our members will be able to see Friday night. We're going to have an opening, but boy, is that spectacular up there. So you have a lot to look forward to um, on our next new floor opening. It's just beautiful. Every, every division and every part is another exciting space. So uh, we're really excited about that. So and one of them is uh, the exhibition is Saving Washington, which is very much about Dolly Madison, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. And that Dolly Madison in the White House program is part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, we want to thank Mr. Schwartz for not only the programs that he supports and funds, but he supports and funds so many other things, and he's been here since I've been here, and it's just a thrill to have Bernard Schwartz as a sponsor, so let's give him a hand. I'd also like to thank one of the, our trustees with us tonight, Ira Unschuld, and all the Chairman's Council with us this evening for all their great work and support. Let's give them a big hand as well. Thank you. So as I mentioned, tonight's program is in conjunction with our Center for Women's History, and the, the inaugural exhibit is Saving Washington, and it will be on view through July 30th. And we are so grateful to our partners supporting this, Hogan Lovells, the corporate, spons the corporate sponsor of women's history programs at New York Historical. So the program tonight will last an hour, include a question and answer session. And for those of you who've been here, we're now doing Q&A on cards. And you should have received a card and a pencil. It allows so many more people to ask questions and to have many more answered. So if you haven't written your question already, as they're talking, write your question. Our staff will be up and down the aisles to collect the cards several times through the talk. And there will be a formal book signing following the program. Copies of our speakers' books you will find in our museum store on the 77th Street side of the building. Our speakers will be signing on the Central Park West side. So we are, oh, I have a pocketbook with me. I didn't realize that. <laughs> I was supposed to put it down. Oh, thank you. I'm not taking off, so. <laughs> so we're so thrilled to welcome celebrated historian Carol Birkin back to New York Historical. She is presidential professor of History Emerita at Baruch College and the Graduate Center, CUNY, an expert on colonial America and women's history. She has appeared in numerous television documentaries, including the PBS special, Alexander Hamilton. Professor Birkin is author of several books, including Revolutionary Mothers and her latest, to be released next week, A Sovereign People, the Crisis of the 1790s and the Birth of American Nationalism. And she will be here for a program on that with Gordon Wood, who will moderate. That will be coming up. She also serves on the Scholarly Advisory Committee 
of New York Historical Center for Women History, Women's History. We're also honored to welcome back Cokie Roberts, a renowned political commentator for ABC News and NPR. She has won countless awards, including three Emmys, and was cited by the American Women in Radio and Television as one of the 50 greatest women in the history of broadcasting. She's my favorite. Ms. Roberts is the author of six New York Times best-selling books and has written widely on the contributions of women to the country's founding and its preservation. In 2008, the Library of Congress named her a living legend. So before we begin, I'd just like to ask that you please turn your cell phones and other electronic devices off. And now, please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. Hello. Hello. She's Carol, I'm Koki. Right. <laughs> uh, my job, among other things, is to sort of keep us on a variety of topics. Ergo, my notes. <laughs> We're going to talk about a fascinating woman. Absolutely. Dolly Madison who did not, by the way, invent ice cream, <laughs> despite what my students insist. Or cake, or Dolly Madison cake. Cake, that's right, <laughs> that's right. Let's start with her early life. She was raised uh, in a Quaker family. Her father converted to Quakerism because her mother was a Quaker and gave up his slaves and they went from being a prosperous family <laughs> to an impoverished family. He moved to Philadelphia, and he was not very good in business. And her mother wound up taking in borders, borders which was pretty uh, fortunate since that's how Her Dolly mother also met. sounds like she must have been um, a somewhat hospitable and charming person. Person, too. yes. I mean, we don't know a lot about her, but, right. but, but all of the sort of affect of, of that household makes me think that she was somebody that everybody liked. But by the time, really, the family hit rock bottom, Dolly had gotten married. She married John Todd uh, in 1790, and he died in the horrific yellow fever epidemic that hit Philadelphia in 1793. Along with her newborn infant. Her newborn infant. Uh, the whole government vanished from Philadelphia. Alexander Hamilton almost died from, I guess he was too difficult to die. Right. Uh, he probably uh, had too much perfume on. Yeah. <laughs> too many ladies. Uh, two <laughs> of this yellow fever. There's a wonderful book about it called Bring Out Your Dead. Uh, thousands of people really died from that, and she became a widow in seven. So if you'll let me do this, Carol, I just learned that our first national health care bill was to, um, it was federal government health care, it was a mandate, and it was for uh, uh, merchant sailors, and they were mandated to pay into a federal health care system. Really? And, yes. And, um, and the ship owners were as well because of yellow fever. Wow. And hospitals were set up at the ports by the federal government 
And, um, and you could not land in a port city if you couldn't prove that you had paid into the healthcare system. Wow. I know. And the, <laughs> and the concern about where the yellow fever came from will also seem sadly familiar. Uh, immigrants were accused of bringing yellow fever into Philadelphia, into the port of Philadelphia. Uh, so she was a widow uh, after three years of marriage. And the reason I said it's wonderful her mother took in boarders was one of the boarders was Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr introduced the young widowed, black-haired, blue-eyed, very attractive Dolly. Charming. Charming. She, but she, still, she did have a living child. She had a toxic. Pain, yeah. And uh, Pain was an appropriate name for this person. Yes, yes, <laughs> he did give it to her. Uh, and she met James Madison. And within a year, he was 17 years older than her, as, by the way, apropos of almost nothing except I wrote about her, uh, uh, Verena Howell Davis was 17 years younger than Jefferson Davis. That marriage did not work not out good. well. Not good. not good at all. And they were married in 1794. So she had a very brief widowhood. And I must tell you that most historians of this era, when we gather together over a glass of wine, always ask the same question. Why on earth did she marry that nerd? (laughs) (laughs) And she married him at her sister's house. Um, Her sister had married a nephew of George Washington. They were at her sister's house in Virginia, and she writes um, that day a letter to her dear friend Sally uh, Coles, I guess. No, anyway, Um, and says, um, I'm getting married tonight. And then she she signs it, Dolly Payne Todd, and then she later writes, Dolly Madison, alas. If you think we're exaggerating, a Englishman who met them for the first time described them thusly. She is an Amazon, and he looks like a puny knight from Lilliputia. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, they stayed married. Right. Her first experience as first lady was actually as a surrogate. Thomas Jefferson was a widower. And Dolly frequently played the role of hostess on the few occasions that he actually had mixed uh, gender events. Well, first of all, he didn't like to have women there, but he also right. didn't mix Federalists and Republicans. That's right. So he, he kept everybody separate. Um, but there, there, is, there, there are a couple of desperate letters where he says, Mrs. Madison, get here fast. You know, the, <laughs> the women are coming. Um, but, uh, and if you think politics is dirty today, when uh, her husband was running for the presidency, the Federalists spread a rumor that Dolly had actually slept with Thomas Jefferson during those times when she was the hostess. And that he had pimped her and her sisters in exchange for votes in Congress. I mean, so if you think, you know, that things are rough now, (laughs) let us introduce you to the 
early 19th century. But Carol, don't you think that beyond um, her hosting, her occasional hosting at the executive mansion, that really what she was doing was se setting up an entirely separate power center. Absolutely. So Absolutely. As, as the wife of the Secretary of State. A absolutely. And, and so that's where the entertaining really took right. place. Right, right. Was at her house. Right. And, and they, and it, it needed to because, you know, as bad as things are now, and they're bad, um, the, um, the partisanship and regionalism became so fierce in the early days of the Republic, which was way too young and fragile exactly. to sustain it. And she understood that. And she made people come together and um, Federalists and Republicans be together in her house and, and have some wine and some cider and behave. And it's not like there were many other places no. that they could go. <laughs> and a lot of these men didn't know other members of their own party. I mean, they were, uh, if you came from the backwoods of Massachusetts, you were not likely really to know some of the leaders of your party. So not only did she make it possible for Congress to sort of cohere as a body, but she was very good at getting people in a situation, a social situation, uh, where they were forced to be polite to one right. another and they forced to, to converse with one another and could be nudged into thinking about that word that is now anathema, compromise. And she was uh, really, women were, not, not just Dolly, but several of these women who were permanently in Washington society were really the glue right. that held these this this I mean, very you fragile. You have to think about this. The, the, it was not a city. It was this idea. And, um, and so there was a little clump of houses on Capitol Hill. And a lot of them stayed in boarding houses, in boarding houses when houses they were with there. Exactly the like who, who agreed with them. You know, they watched Fox News. And, um, <laughs> and, then, and then there was another little clump of houses around the executive mansion. And getting from one to the other was muddy and difficult. There was a canal. There were stumps of trees in the way. Right. Uh, getting from Georgetown to Capitol Hill was two hours. Yeah. So, it's, it's, so that's what we're dealing with. So the few women who were there really were essential to the place because they created some sense of, of um, civility. And, and they were aware of it. They were very aware of it. Very conscious of it. Uh, Dolly held, if you contrast her with the two first ladies that preceded her, Martha Washington sat on a dais and very formally greeted people every Wednesday. I think she had Wednesday receptions. Abigail was really uninterested in entertaining and hated everybody who didn't like her husband, which included most of the people in uh, poor John Adams. Uh, and the White House was sort of a shell at the time. Abigail hung her laundry in what became the great parlor of, of, the, room, right? the, of, the, of the White House. And here comes Dolly, who really understands what role she can play, not just for the sake of all of 
the country, but for her husband. Absolutely. For her she husband. was always running his his campaigns. And, right. And she understood that that's what she was doing. And she had these events called squeezes, which you can I gather. imagine how pleasant that was. Because sometimes there would be 300 people pa- packed like sardines in the... Uh, in her White House receptions. Now, Dolly had more money. That is, the Madisons had more money than Abigail and John. Abigail and John were really sort of middle-class New Englanders, but Dolly... She managed their money very well. No, but... No, Abigail. Abigail. But she had more money, and she hires Benjamin Latrobe, and they decorate the White House. But she doesn't just do it with her money. Um, So Jefferson, so the the Adams are there for 15 minutes, and then, you know, he he loses. And Jefferson comes in. It's bare. He brings his own stuff from Monticello. Right. And then he brings it home. And um, she gets there to this basically empty house, mm-hmm. um, um, and says, this is no place for a president. And, and so she goes to Congress and says, we need money to decorate the White House. And they're saying, or the executive mansion, they're saying, sure. You know, I mean, you can imagine the reaction, right? It's all just what we want to do is give money for you people. Um, but then she brings them to the house and walks them through it. And they see how... Uh, really uh, unacceptable it is, uh, and how foreign ambassadors would be laughing at us and all of that. And so she then undertakes what's essentially a public works project. Right. And um, she and Benjamin Latrobe and his wife, yes, um, together really uh, set about decorating the White House. And they do a very good job of just enough elegance that foreigners won't think, oh, you yokels. Right. And just enough Republican, small r, you know, American uh, simplicity. When she's, uh, when her husband is inaugurated, she's 40 years old, and she wears, you can see it upstairs in Saving Washington, uh, the exhibit about Dolly and about this era. Uh, She wears a relatively simple dress, and she won't wear a tiara because she thinks that this is queenly. queenly. So she wears a turban with a giant feather in it. And And, pearls. And and the Europeans, in fact, think the dress is horribly plain. And the Americans think it's just lovely. So she's always, I think, awfully well negotiating this difference between the foreign audience she has and the domestic audience that she has. And in, and in fact, at the inauguration, at which was the first inaugural ball, which was in Long's Hotel, um, she sat, she was a sort of crescent-shaped table, and she had the French ambassador on one side and the British ambassador on the other. They were at war, but, um, but, <laughs> right. she, but she brought them together uh, for the night of the inaugural. And, right. um, and the president was nowhere to be seen. I mean, he was somewhere you know, <laughs> where nobody noticed. He was off writing very long sentences with many colons and semicolons. <laughs> <in them. laughs> I, I think we really can't stress enough the significance of, the, of her social 
creation. Because, in fact, this is what allowed these men to work together. This is what brought them together. And also, it was a remarkable opportunity for patronage. She did not she did not miss a trick when it came to finding friends and relatives, uh, posts in the government or But everybody came to her and asked her. Yes. The whole everybody world asked her. asked her for a job. And uh, and, and not him. They asked right. her. Right. And, and um, what's interesting I think is that men had asked Hamilton and Washington and Adams for jobs. But women, if you read Dolly's correspondence, women write to her, can you help my husband? Right. Can you help my son? Can you get my son out of jail? Can you, I mean, she becomes a sort of conduit. And part of the reason this is so important is there's no civil service exam in America until the end of the 19th century. So the way, <coughs> excuse me, the way you got a, a position, a post, was through personal contact. And so she becomes sort of the channel by which this personal contact is possible for many, many people. And they owe her husband, as a result, political favors. And she's well aware of that. Yes. Um, yes. And, that, and it's not just jobs, which are legion, but also endorsements. They want her endorsement of everything. So uh, George Watterson, who was the Librarian of Congress, wrote a play. Can I dedicate it to you? You know, that, she gets a lot of this. Parson Weems, the famous uh, writer of histories of the the revolutionary generation, all of which are, are, are bogus. All of <laughs> Absolutely nothing in them is not intentionally. He just didn't know. He made it all up. He sends her. Well, he's the one who describes Washington sitting on his mother's knee, and that's where he learned <laughs> republicanism. And anyone who knows anything about Washington's mother knows that no one sat on her knee, and, and Washington and she did not, not like each other at day. all. <laughs> so Parson Weems sends her material. They're all asking for her endorsement or her support or her subscription to their book, uh, and... I, I never know how many of them she actually did. Did well. I, I know she did the Watterson one, but um, probably a few, you know. Um, but and then somebody would write and say, "Well, my daughter is an aspiring actress, that kind of thing. Uh, can you find her a role and right. tell other right. people?" Right. But, right. But I, I did uh, find, as I was thinking about this and talking about her, her squeezes. You know, yes. Um, a Pennsylvania congressman, uh, Jonathan Roberts, wrote, by her deportment in her own house, you cannot discover who is her husband's friends or foes. So, you know, she just played it. And, um, and there were times when the Federalists would say, we're not going. We're not going to the squeezes because we're boycotting Madison and why should we show up at his house? This is all sounding so familiar. <laughs> and, um, and then they discovered they had to go. Because if they didn't go, they didn't know anything. Right. Because that's where all the information got exchanged and not she, all the deals got done. She does manage to get a lot of information out of the foreign diplomats that is very important to her husband right. in deciding how to deal with them. And she manages to get them to, re and their wives, to right. reveal things 
that they don't even realize they're revealing, which I think really is a masterful uh, political you know, skill. Really, aside from the politics of it, this is kind of the, I guess feminism is too strong a word, but the, um, the way women and men's interests are different. And women and men's letters are very different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always say women's letters are so, 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 so much better. Um, <laughs> because the men's letters are, you know, uh, studied and edited and pompous. And the women's letters are just letters. And she does write to her sister at one point that the French ambassador is beating his wife. And she says, don't tell anybody because, you know, it will, right. it will not be good if right. people know I know. But she's horrified. And uh, she's trying to figure out how she can help and what she can do about it. And that's something you would never in a million years read in a man's letter. No. She thought it was important. Nobody else did. No. No, absolutely. Well, she was confessed to frequently, I think. Uh -huh. uh, she had that kind of openness and, and ear for people to talk to her. We are certain you have heard the story that I always have the picture of Dolly Madison carrying out no. the picture of Washington, <laughs> the portrait of Washington, you know, under her arm, ice cream <laughs> in one hand. And, and, <laughs> And the, I mean, it's a great, great big, big portrait. portrait. <laughs> she did not. She had her servants carry it. She was the foreman, and they carried it But out. she did secure it. She did secure it, and the silver, the household silver. And she stayed in Washington as the British Army is slogging down the street until it was all... Uh, safe. And it's interesting that that's what she saved because she understood that Washington was the symbol of the nation and that it would carry great weight that that portrait was. She had a very astute political sense about what would hold, uh, patri about patriotism right. and what would hold the country together. And when it was time to go back, it was suggested to her recommended to her that they go back to Philadelphia, which had been the capital, and she said, no, we're going back to Washington. But I, think we, I think we need to go back and describe it a little bit because you and I are steeped in it. But um, yeah. um, So the British are attacking Washington. It's 1814. And um, the, the American uh, military is convinced the British are never going to come to Washington. It's not enough of a city for them to worry about. Baltimore, maybe, but not Washington. So there are no defenses. And uh, Madison is out visiting with the troops um, right outside of town. And she is virtually alone in the White House. Mm -hmm. And she has prepared a meal for the, she expects him to come back with some officers and some cabinet members. And, um, and she then is being told constantly through the day, get out of here, get out of here. Right. And she's waiting for him to come back. And she goes up on the roof with a spyglass, and she's looking, and no, there's no sign of her husband. And finally, um, her sister, who has a bunch of little children, uh, comes up in a carriage and, and basically said, you've got to go. And so she does she insist on securing the portrait of, mm -hmm. of Washington and putting as 
as her enslaved servant who has written extensively about this, said she caught up what silver she could in her old reticule, <laughs> and off they finally went. And so now the British arrive, and they start marauding through Washington, and they get to her home, which she has so lovingly uh, and painstakingly uh, made into this beautiful place for an American leader. And, and the first thing they do is sit down and eat her meal. And I mean, it's kind of like Goldilocks. And, um, and, um, and one of the soldiers wrote, a dinner table spread with covers uh, laid for 40 guests, and we had an elegant and substantial repast. He said he felt guilty about it, but, um, but, he, but, ate it. but he ate it anyway and had some fine wine. And then when they finally, you know, had had their fill and set fire to the place, since they didn't have Washington's portrait to steal, which would have been the equivalent of knocking down Saddam Hussein's statue or, or right. what had happened in the revolution, knocking down, down George, the, George the Third's statue yes. here in New York. Um, instead, they stole the portrait of Dolly Madison. And um, I'm sure it did unspeakable things. Um, but... Um, <laughs> But that, um, that was the, the story, the very dramatic story. And, um, and then she came back four days later to this devastated city because after the fire, there was a flood, which was a good thing because it kind of scared the British. Mm -hmm. and, um, and she's horrified. And this is the place she has made her place and so special. And there is a huge movement to, because well, there were a lot of people in Philadelphia who didn't want the Capitol in this godforsaken place anyway, weren't Right, right. So, and there are lots of letters saying, that's it for Washington, it's done. And she lobbies like nobody's business right. to keep that Capitol where it was. And she succeeded. Well, considering that her husband was a Virginian, right. uh, and his party was really founded by Jefferson and Madison, it's not surprising that she wanted to keep it there in what was really Virginia. But I think she also had a sense that it was a sign of we are not defeated right. if we keep this capital, if we sustain it. And the idea of moving it to a commercial city when against the Republican uh, idea of an agricultural world. I, I, I but you know, the war itself, the War of 1812, was an incredibly unpopular war. Not one Federalist voted for it, for the, the uh, war resolution. Mr. Madison's war. Right. And so when the election of 1812 comes, as it's all happening, uh, and you have DeWitt Clinton, the governor of New York, running uh, as a sort of the end of the weak Federalist Party, but a breakaway group of Republicans backing him as well. He's a formidable candidate with a very unpopular president. And she, again, because of putting together these coalitions and bringing people together, she campaigned like nobody's business. And later in the century, James G. Blaine wrote, Mrs. Madison saved the administration of her husband. But for her, DeWitt Clinton would have been chosen president in 1812. So she was 
people understood what she was, what she was doing. Mm -hmm. She was not somebody we've sort of uh, turned over the rocks and discovered uh, in the 20th and 21st centuries as we've looked for women. Not at all. We rediscovered her because she had been in some ways forgotten uh, as people paid no attention to women. But in her day, she was, was known very, often exactly. as Mrs. President. Right. But the kind of thing that she did loses, that is, in many ways, it reminds me, it's analogous to the women of France before Napoleon who ran salons, who had the same kind of influence in politics, who had the same kind of ability to... Uh, offer patronage, who had the same kind of ability to bring people together. And Napoleon wants to crush this power, and he introduces a civil service. And I think what happens by the time of Van Buren is that the parties take on, in an institutional way, the kinds of things that Dolly uh -huh. had been doing. Uh -huh. A lot of... Uh, his, uh, history books claim that the famous scandal of Peggy Eaton under Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson. Uh, is what destroyed the power of women in Washington. But I think really it was the rise of, of uh, the parties as solid institutions. But, but you know, it really didn't destroy the power of women in Washington. I mean, my whole growing up in the 1950s in Washington, women were very powerful in the same way that Dolly Madison was powerful. So it was, it, they ran everything in the political conventions, the voter registration drive, right. their husband's campaigns, their, of course, us kids, um, and all the social service organizations in Washington. So it's just a question of whether it's captured and remembered. Right. As, right yes. Right? And, I, and um, one Federalist paper wrote in 1812 about her, about Dolly. She's been a very good president. <laughs> Must not be turned out now. So. The influence she had also had to do with how long she, she was around. <laughs> and she, many of the first ladies who came after her really came for training with Dolly. They came to get advice about how to operate uh, as as the first lady of the United States. Well, we should States. say she. So after his two terms, she went. She went back to Montpelier, which she basically hated. Um, I mean, she would write these letters, say, "What's going on? You know, right. I'm stuck in the country." Um, and and actually, uh, as she left, um, again, a a Federalist newspaper uh, wrote. Wait, it's a wonderful quotation that I just love. Um, said that she came like a star, uh, oh, so at his inaugural, um, Jefferson had said, we're all Federalists, we're all Republicans. He, he was lying. He didn't mean a word of it, right? <laughs> exactly. But this, the portfolio newspaper wrote that she took that sentiment and turned it into a practice. And like a summer's sun, she rose in our political, on our political horizon gloriously and she sunk benignly. <laughs> <laughs> and then she went to Montpelier. Port. Her husband died in 1836, and she discovered, I'm sure to her sorrow, 
that her son, Madison had shielded her from what a no good Nick her son Payne was. Uh, And when her husband died, she discovered, in fact, that they were broke, that he had either gambled away or mismanaged virtually everything. And, of course, the whole Madison family was furious with her. Right. And she had to sell Montpelier. And move, and she moved back to Washington, and she really was impoverished. Right. People brought her food, including her former slaves. I, I, I mean, they were. T- uh, she was on the brink of starvation, and finally, Congress grants her. Yes, but then the, the debtors, then Payne's uh, uh, creditors, came and took it all. Took it. Um, he's buried in the Congressional Cemetery in Washington, and every time we go by his grave, we kick it. Um, <laughs> we should tell you one more thing, though, uh, before we move on to her post-White uh, House life, which is that, uh, as you've come to know here through Hamilton, um, a man I can't stand, but the... It is, a hero. But it, but oh, it's dear. a wonderful place. Jewels at dawn, <laughs> But... Um, you know the story of Eliza Hamilton and, and uh, Graham Wyndham here. Same thing happened in Washington. After the War of 1812, Dolly Madison and the women of Washington uh, established the female orphan asylum mm-hmm. for the girls who had been left fatherless by the invasion. And it was um, an incredibly uh, uh, useful place taking in girls, training them, placing them in work, all of that. And as with the orphanage established by Isabella Graham and with the help of Eliza Hamilton in 1806 here, which is still going as Graham Wyndham serving Mm -hmm. the children of Washington, Dolly Madison's orphanage is still going, not as an orphanage, but as a social service agency, still serving the children, I mean, New York, I meant about Graham Wyndham, still serving the children of Washington. Mm -hmm. So these women set up institutions, first of all, had the wherewithal to do it. They had to go out of their comfort zone, Mm -hmm. had to go into the public sphere, had to lobby, had to raise funds, had to make speeches, had to withstand ridicule. Um, But they did it because they understood they were people who were falling through the cracks. And, and these institutions still exist today. The same thing happens after the Civil War. Elizabeth Johnson uh, helps found an orphanage for the children of veterans of the South. <laughs> and uh, one is formed, I'm sorry, for the North, and Verena Howell Davis or helps organize one for orphans produced by the Civil War in the, in the South. So this cleaning up by women right. after the disasters of death and mayhem by men, said an unfair thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true. It's really a, a tradition among political leaders, wives in, in Washington. But think about it. They had no political power and no legal power. And still they did it. And right. these institutions survive, right. serving the children of 21st century America. Right. Quite amazing. Uh, Dolly's impact uh, lasted 
through until the Civil War, really. Uh, other first uh, ladies learned from her. And presidents. And presidents learned from her. And foreign leaders called her. her. Yes. Yes, she became... People paid homage to her until, until her death. Which was in 1849. Nine. And uh, it was in July, so Congress wasn't in session. But there was still an enormous funeral at St. John's Church. And then the whole city walked in July in Washington the four miles to Congressional Cemetery. Mm. Um, and it was just an incredible outpouring. She, uh, she had had pretty much every honor that could be bestowed by then. She, had she a, was given a seat in, in, the, House a, a special, in the House of Representatives. Right. She had her own chair, her own seat, so she could go whenever she wanted to to the, to and, the session. And medals, you know, struck with her image and all of that. But uh, until, uh, until she died... Really, there was nobody else who could take that role. She really ruled the roost until until she died, and she then there was a real competition that took place. But um, after her, after yes, her death. yes, yes. But um, she she was the first. She was essentially the first lady from the time James Madison got to Washington in 1801 until she died in 1849. Yeah. yeah. And not remembered until she had to be rediscovered uh, by women's historians. Right. Really, you could read the whole history of that era and not see her mentioned right. in many, many books. We have a whole series of questions uh, from the audience that I get to read and the two of us <coughs> can answer or as I always say, I will answer any question I know the answer to. And if I don't, I will say, see me after class. That's from years of teaching. Did Dolly Madison know about Jefferson's mistress, Sally Hemings? Who knows? Um, yeah. um, it was in the newspapers. Right. So It was well known at the time. Right. So, but it's, it was probably not talked about. Uh, it would have been surprising to me for them to have talked about it. Um, but it was hardly a secret. Um, and the, I mean, there were, you know, poems, Dusky Sally and all right. of that. And actually, one of the things Jefferson did after the uh, first publications was to insist that his daughters come to the White House right. and give him some cover. Right. And, um, and right. they dutifully did. And his uh, one daughter died young in childbirth, um, as had his wife. Um, but his other daughter, Martha Jefferson Randolph, who had a baby a year with a really awful husband, yes. um, and, um, was incredibly devoted to her father. And so she would show up, you know, with all these babies in tow. And, uh, and she actually gave birth to the first baby in the White House, James Madison Randolph. And um, Louisa Catherine Adams, John Quincy Adams' wife, who wrote the most wonderful letters, said that the woman who was trying to help Martha Jefferson uh, through the childbirth said she looked around and she couldn't find anything. There was no food. There was no water. There were no towels. She said it was bachelor hall. I bet there was <laughs> wine, yes. 
Now, here's the question, too. Where did Madison physically keep his notes from the Constitutional Convention all those years? No doubt in that ersatz Greek temple library that he built at Montpelier. Uh, and what did Dolly do with them when he died? Well, they were published. They were published, yeah. but again, this was all part. So Congress would pay to publish these things, and then all of the money would go to the creditors of her near-do-well son. It was just awful. Um, but I recommend to everyone to go to Montpelier. Yes. Um, it has gone through a wonderful, wonderful reconstruction. Actually, yes. um, for a while... Um, it had been lived in. It was lived in into well into the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was the name of the family? It was one of those. Uh, it was not. Um, it, it was Pom. Was it a Dupont? The Duponts um, bought it and and added a whole front, which is now gone. And uh, archaeology is the, the archaeologists are discovering all kinds of things, including. A slave, slave village, yes. well, not whole village, but a few slave right. houses right next to the big house. house. And, and so, a slave cemetery right, right nearby. So there's a whole kind of conversation going on about what was that about? Was Madison um, experimenting in some way with education or uh, governance or all that? Because usually the quarters, as they were called, were removed. And so... Um, it's, it's a very interesting project that's going on, and it's ongoing all the time. I highly, highly recommend it. Yes. Uh, could you describe Dolly's relationships with presidents after she left the White House? Did she ever meet or see Abraham Lincoln? I don't think she... Well, she might have met Lincoln when he came as a young as a congressman. young congressman. That was... That's, um, that's, that's possible. There's no record of it that I know no. of. Um, but she did have uh, excellent relationships with all of the presidents who, again, as we were saying, they, they paid homage to her. Um, she, was, she was a very distinguished personage. And um, there's an argument about whether she was at the dedication of the Washington Monument. <laughs> I'm of the view that she was. Um, but um, she was certainly invited to be there and expected to be there. Uh, and the newspapers said she was there, so I kind of think she was there. Uh, but um, but that was an, and and first example of fake news. There you go, um, <laughs> and Eliza Hamilton as well. And um, and this was a, a statement of uh, pain. Uh, honor to them, but they also, the Washington Monument is fraught, you know, it, it couldn't get built forever. And it was also that the, the um, Washington Monument Society was asking those women to raise the money for it. And so they put them in charge of a whole fundraising operation mm -hmm. because they thought if Mrs. Madison was in charge, maybe we'll get the money. Is it... <laughs> I love this. Is it known what James Madison's first words were when he greeted his future wife? I'm sure it was a long and tedious <laughs> sentence. Well, I weren't they supposed to be on some street corner in Philadelphia? Wasn't there some story where they were? Uh, he saw, I know what it was. He saw her on the corner and said to Burr, I'd, I'd like, like to, to meet, meet her. her, yes. And then it was, you know, little Jimmy Madison wants to meet you. 
<laughs> Jimmy spelled J-E-M-M-Y. Yes, Jimmy Madison. Uh, I loved, he was a terrible hypochondriac. There's not a letter he writes that doesn't begin. I have some mysterious illness. I might die. The man lives a nice long. And it's interesting because she, in her letters, is always answering, yes, uh, Mr. Madison is feeling better now. Right. Yes, <laughs> yes. Did Dolly Madison have a correspondence or a relationship with Eliza Hamilton? She did have a relationship with But her. not a correspondence. Not a, uh, no. And, of course, no. they were different parties. Um, um, but, and, and the, so, this gets complicated. So, when Alexander Hamilton had the affair with Mariah Reynolds, the person who came to him to yes. say, you have been, uh, dealing in treasury securities and we have evidence because you've been blackmailed, was James Monroe. And when uh, Hamilton said, no, it was not that I was, I'm, I wasn't being blackmailed uh, because of, of illicit <laughs> It was because it I was had because an I was having an affair with the wife of the guy who was blackmailing me. And so... And he uh, writes a 58 page Well, that was later, yes. so, so then Monroe says, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, you know, we wouldn't dream of talking about it. You're just screwing around with somebody and not the, not the government money. And so uh, off he goes, but he holds on to the letters. Right. And so later, uh, when, it's, when the parties are even more hostile and Monroe is going, well, it's before Monroe's presidency, but it's when, when Hamilton is rising, Monroe reveals it. Right. And so that's when Hamilton has to go public and say that he has had this affair. Not without a blush, he says. Yes. Um, I've, I have to admit I've had this affair. And, uh, and Eliza never forgave James Monroe Ever. what he did. He comes to her late in life. Late, late in life. He's been president. She's a widow. He's he, been president. And he comes basically to say, gee, I'm really sorry. And she won't have it. Get out. She has absolutely, she has never forgotten and never forgiven him. And so because the Monroes and the Madisons have also had complicated relationships, mm -hmm. but they were basically um, uh, partners by the end. And so it would have been a difficult relationship between Dolly and Eliza because of the Monroe situation. Monroe actually ran against Madison yes. for a seat in Congress. Congress. Patrick Henry put him up, and he gerrymandered the districts actually, to make sure that Madison's Orange County, which was Federalist, was sort of en encompassed with these uh, anti-Federalist uh, wait, 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 counties. Wait, wait, wait. So this is actually the first election for Congress. Congress, yes, this the very first. Very first. This is 1780. And Monroe so, runs, and Monroe so, is a kid. So, so Patrick Henry. So in this case, federal. This is really getting complicated. Yeah. In this case, federalist means people who are for the Constitution. Constitution. And so, Henry's not. Patrick Henry is not for the Constitution. So we talk about gerrymandering today and drawing districts and redistricting. This is districting. There was no re yet. Yeah, right. And Patrick Henry draws a district that looks like this. And down in each finger of this district, he pulls in 
oh, the anti-federalists, uh, the anti-Constitution anti people, and runs Monroe against Madison, the very first Congress. So George Washington, Madison's in, in um, Philadelphia. George Washington says to him, you know, you're going to lose. And Madison says, what? You know, I am the father of the Constitution. And Washington says, that's your problem. And, um, <laughs> and he says, you better get there. You better get to Virginia. And campaign, which yeah. Madison says, is beneath. that is beneath. A gentleman does right. not campaign. And, and then he says, winds up doing Washington says, if you want to win, you better campaign. Right. right. So he goes and discovers he is going to lose. And so he starts campaigning. And he then promises all of these anti-federalists, that the minute he's elected, he will, he will propose a Bill of Rights. And it's and a good so, thing he did, because so. I wrote a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> if he hadn't done it, there you'd be. So How, let me just finish this. So we get, to, he get, you know, so Congress convenes. They've got everything to figure out, right? What's the money? Who's getting paid? Where's the capital? What's, and he says, Bill of Rights. And they say, are you out of your Right, you know, go away. We've just don't done a ratification. That. Right. You know, do we, we said campaign promise. <laughs> so, so you see, gerrymandering got us a bill of rights. It's okay. How would you imagine Dolly in our time? A force of nature, a spy, a CEO, a diplomat, Martha Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to imagine dead people uh, in any other period of time, but the kind of thing that she did probably now would be translated into corporate life, I think. You do? Uh, yeah, entertaining, helping her husband out, making sure yeah, that- she was such a good politician. Well, there's politics involved in no, that, I, I hear tell. But, but she was so, I think she'd be in politics. Um, you think? Yeah, I think she's such a good politician. I mean, one of the things she did Again, you know, we, we grasp at these letters, right? Because it's, it's so hard to, writing women's history is detective work. And you're always trying to find something that tells you something. But one was that, so during uh, the whole fight over the Embargo Act, this is before the War of 1812, everybody hated the Embargo Act. <laughs> the, no, the Northerners hated it because they wanted to ship goods, and the, and the Southerners hated it because they wanted to import goods. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there was about to be a duel, because duels happened all the time, uh, between crazy old John Randolph and uh, one of Thomas Jefferson's sons, sons-in-law. Um, and it would have been a disaster for James Madison if this duel had taken place over the Embargo Act and somebody had gotten killed over it. She stopped it. And the French ambassador wrote, who was, was not disinterested, um, wrote that uh, it, nobody could believe that the outcome was so unusual, so different from custom. And the entire credit went to Mrs. Madison, he wrote. So I just think her skills were so, so finely honed in the political sphere. That I'd vote for her. <laughs> so here's one. Amer I, I'm not sure I agree with the premise, but America was a homespun country. Oh. Did a, I, I think, Go up and look at the exhibits. It looks pretty yes, good. I, I think Virginia <laughs> planters lived pretty elegant. But anyway, did Dolly Madison 
bring any sort of new outsider style to the federal government. Actually, Dolly uh, uh, democratizes the experience. Martha Washington had been a great deal, and you have to excuse Martha Washington, they're the first, and they, what models do they have except European royalty and nobility, and they're trying to impress the outside world with the fact that, yes, we too are a sovereign nation. So she and George sort of adopt this uh, regal style when they invite people in. And the cabinet constrains her in all kinds of ways. ways. And and, and along comes Dolly, and she says, come on down, come come to my house. She goes to visit people. Uh, She doesn't uh, stand on ceremony. And she's very careful to make sure those turbans are not just because she was having a bad hair day. Those turbans are her compromise between the kind of elegant headdress that the European aristocracy are wearing and the simple bonnet. The that, the, 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 and so she's, she's actually threading that needle, taking that position between what Europeans would expect and the, and the dignity of her husband's office and the dignity of... We have one, of, one of the ambassador's wives wrote that her meals were like a harvest home. Yes. And, um, but her clothes were quite elegant. Uh, now, she wore them until the day she died because she was so poor. Um, so it was a good thing that they were well made. Well made, yes. Um, but, um, but she, exactly, she was, she was a friend to all. And that was, that was the persona that she projected. Although now, you know, now Henry Clay said to her, and she, and she dipped stuff, and, um, and Henry Clay said to her at one point, Everyone loves Mrs. Madison. And she said, well, that's because Mrs. Madison loves everybody. Now, we've read her mail. It's not true. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but that was the, what she conveyed to people. And actually, uh, I don't know if America was homespun, but it certainly there's a moment in one of these uh, gatherings at her home where a foreign dignitary to her amazement, the wife of a foreign, sees uh, one of uh, the American wives leaning on the table and reaching into a salad bowl with her hand. And he says, she says, what are you doing? She says, I'm chasing an onion down. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 but this was... That was after the West was allowed. Exactly. <laughs> I was, you took the, this was because we begin to get congressmen from really the backwoods of America. Uh, There was one story of, you know, one of them arriving and never seen a piano before. And he was just so amazed. Look at that thing does. (laughs) Right. So here's, we know men wore wigs. Well, not all men wore wigs, but, but they, some did. We know men wore wigs and boiled them periodically. Did Dolly wear a wig or only a bonnet? She probably wore some wigs. Uh, in fact, there are letters asking for wigs. And then the Jefferson girls, when they came to, uh, women, when they came to Washington, asked her to get them wigs. So, um, so they, she must have had a wig maker. Right. Um, but, she, but she's famous for the turbans. It, 
one of the most interesting things about the correspondence in this era and about women's role in, in commerce, in a sense, is you see countless letters. Uh, Betsy Bonaparte oh, is a friend of hers. so fabulous. And she goes <laughs> Shocking. Uh, to Paris and to Rome and to... And she and hardly and, any clothes. And she, <laughs> she and uh, uh, Dolly are friends. They're quite good friends. Uh, and Dolly writes to her, "Can you bring me back X? Can you bring me back Y?" And there's a whole sort of female uh, current uh, commerce going on, of orders that are given and you send back or bring back uh, items for the people back home, and you can see this in their correspondence. Of course, Abigail Adams had John do that during the war, Revolutionary War, so that she could make a living. And uh, he- And she said, yes, so she sold them. She yes. sold them. She said, right, exactly. But Dolly was a bit of a fashion plate in uh -huh, that sense. She was. Because certainly Betsy Bonaparte And people was. wrote about her clothes. People, and, and so, and, you know, she, as she got older, she would wear rouge. <laughs> and, um, and a young woman from Raleigh, North Carolina, which talked about a one-horse town at the time, uh, came with her husband to um, put out the newspaper, the National Intelligencer. And uh, this is Sarah Gale Seaton. And she was very young. And she shows up at her first event at the White House and is just shocked at the makeup. Uh, that the older women are wearing, and because you know she's this fresh-faced girl, and um, and and she says as the evening wore on, that it all started to melt. <laughs> <laughs> Those are great letters. You know? We are. I'm getting the signal that we are out of out of time. Uh, but it's been an awful lot of fun to be fun. with you yes. and talk about this yes. great lady. Thank you. Thank you, Carol Birkin and Cokie Roberts. Um, we will continue our Women in the White House series. There will be more to talk about. We were just talking about what to do next February, probably. We'll be in touch because um, we have a lot to talk about about the White House today, too, right? Women in the White House today. But we can always continue with Dolly and weave her into the story. So there will be a book signing. Uh, Cokie and Carol be signing books. Please stay for the book signing. And May 23rd, on Tuesday, May 23rd, Carol Birkin will be joined by Gordon Wood for her new book, A Sovereign People. And there are still seats left. So please join us. And thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>